Okay, good morning everyone. It's always it's a pleasure to welcome everyone to our legal holiday shear and breakfast. I think the, uh, the, the beauty of today is amplified by the fact that uh, perhaps many of us here and certainly many of uh, the people we know are rushing off after this shear to participate in yet another demonstration of our respect and our love for Torah, i.e. the Siyam Ashas, which uh, is taking place just in a few hours. And we're very gratified to be able to start off this day of a celebration of Torah with a presentation of Torah from someone who's near and dear to us, Rabbi Dr. David Horowitz, um, who'll be speaking about Radak Ramban and the Maimonidean controversy. Without further ado, it's our covered and our privilege to turn the podium over to Rabbi Horowitz. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Ron, for the introduction. Today I would like to divide my lecture into several parts. First, I will outline the Maimonidean controversy which gripped the Jewish communities of Christian Spain, Provence, that is southern France, and even northern France in the early 1230s. This will entail a description of the earlier stages of the controversy, such as a fascinating exchange of letters between Rabbi David Kimchi, known by his acronym Radak, who was an ardent pro-Rambam, pro-Maimonidean, and his opponent, Rabbi Huda Al-Fakar of Toledo, Spain, who was an anti-Maimonidean. And to set the scene, I will spend some time discussing who Radak was. Then I will segue into a brief description of the life and the multifaceted nature of the works of Rav Moshe ben Nachman, known as Nachmanides, and more famously for those of us who study him in the Beis Medrash, the Ramban. Finally, I'll discuss briefly how Ramban tried to end the Maimonidean controversy, and how his stance in the matter itself was reflective of his complex world view. Provence, southern France, is situated geographically between Spain and northern France. And similarly, was an ideological borderland area in which fierce philosophical disputes within the Jewish nation arose. On the one hand, there were the advocates of a strictly rationalist conception of Judaism championed by the Rambam. On the other side, were advocates of a less rationalist conception of Judaism based more on a literal interpretation of Tanakh and based on a curriculum that did not include, did not entail the study of philosophical works. The Ram's dates were 1138 to 1204. Even during his lifetime, his philosophic work, The God of the Perplexed, the Moran of Uchim, as well as the first book of his Halachic Compendium Mishnah Torah, known as Sefer Hamada, came under attack. Such figures as Rav Meir Abulafia, the Ramah, fiercely criticized and attacked the Rambam. Rambam was accused, for example, of not believing in the doctrine of resurrection, of Tchiyas HaMesim, and instead believing only in Olam Haba, which he understood as equivalent to the Aristotelian notion of the eternity of the intellect. The Rambam there is near the end of his life, wrote a work called Maimot Chiyas in which he asserted his belief in the principle. But it is fair to say that he nonetheless devalued it 
and asserted that the ultimate goal, the aim of a human being is indeed the immortality of the soul alone unencumbered by the body by 1225, which is a little over 20 years after the Rambam's death the translation of the Maranavuchim by Rav Shmuel Ibn Tibon had not only reached north of the Pyrenees Mountains into France but the philosophical implications of the Rambam's work were being absorbed by the Jewish communities north of Spain and many of them did not like it it was a backlash against what was perceived as radical Maimonidean views the early 1230s the leading anti-Maimonidean agitator was Rav Shlomo Minahar or Rabbi Salm of Montpellier Montpellier through Mount Mountain Minahar he had with him two followers Rabbi Yona of Girona in northeastern Spain and Rabbi David Ben Shoal the first figure is indeed the famous Rabbi Yona we know him as the author of the celebrated treatise Shari Tshuva and of course he was a famous medieval Jewish ethicist and Talmudic commentator Rav Shlomo Inahar sent his disciple Rabbi Yona north to show the Bali Atosvos a copy of the Moranavuchim and of Sefer Amada to show them what terrible radical doctrines the Ramah actually held there's so many aspects to this controversy I want to focus on one aspect among other Maimonidean doctrines the anti-Maimonidean camp cannot tolerate that according to the Moranavuchim various accounts of biblical miracles were explained away or allegorized in violation of the plain sense of the biblical text the upshot was that the pro-Rambam camp was following the Rambam as opposed to following the words of the prophets themselves a letter from the anti-Rambam camp contains the following passage why have you transgressed the word of the Lord and made the guide that is the Maranabuchim a new Torah you say we that is, Dafka, the pro-Ramam camp, have the right of redemption and inheritance, that is, of what is to be construed as appropriate Judaism. For Moses, Maimonides, commanded us this Torah as inheritance. We are proposed to raise Rabbeinu Moses, Maimonides, higher than the prophets, and to place him at the head. So, Psukim say a certain miracle is to be explained literally, and then the Ramam says, no, it's not to be explained literally, it's only a mushal or an allegory who are you going to follow? the words of the Nvian themselves or the words of the Rambam? the anti-Rambam camp tried to incite the populace of Narbonne Beziers and other communities in Provence against the guide of the perplexed then presumably due to the efforts of Benayona a group of northern French rabbis were convinced to issue a cherem or a writ of excommunication against anyone who would read the Moran of Uchim, or even the Sefer Hamada, the first book of the Ramah's Mishnah Torah. But then, Rosh Shlomo Minahar was accused of doing something far worse, namely, getting the Catholic religious authorities involved in anti-Ramah activities. Remember, we're in the Middle Ages. The Catholic world is in control, totally, of most of northern Europe and the Jews are a to use the phrase of another story in Kenneth Stone alienated minority and once you get the Catholics involved in 
settling Jewish disputes, it's not going to end well. I quote from a translation of a text from Radak, who I mentioned, and we'll see shortly, was firmly in the pro-Rambam, pro-Maimonidean camp. This is about Rosh Minahar. Rav Solomon became corrupt and acted immorally and became a slanderer and informer. His end testifies to his beginning. May the heavens reveal his iniquity and the earth rise up against him. When the rabbis of France abandoned him, considering him a fool and recognized him for a false witness, he turned unto the idols and idolaters. I mean, the Catholics. He entreated them and they agreed to help him in putting forth his, help, his hand against the Jews. He called first to the barefoot Minorites, the Catholic sect, and told them, See how most of our people are heretics and apostates, for they have been seduced by the words of Moses of Egypt, that is the Rambam, who wrote heresy. As long as you are purging yourself of your, that is Christian heretics, purge us of ours. They then ordered the burning of those books, namely the Book of Knowledge, the Mishnah Torah, and the Guide. Yet his uncircumcised heart, that is the Rav Shlomo Minahar, was not satisfied. And he spoke also to the preachers, that is the Dominicans, and to the priests along the same lines, until the matter came to the Cardinal himself. Thus were the Jews in Montpellier and the environs in great danger, were a sport of mockery in the mouth of the Gentiles. The evil slander passed from city and city, and they said, See how the law of the Jews is lost, for they become two factions on account of it. There is no law but ours, meaning the Catholic law. I will mention at this point that many historians claim that the charge that after Rosh Nahar and his students betrayed the Rambam to the Catholics and got the Dominicans involved in the controversy that the Catholics then and there actually burned the books of the Rambam is unproven and may not be true. Yitzchak Ber, the greatest star in Spanish Jewry, in his book, A History of the Jews and Christians in Spain, felt that the testimony of Radak should be valued over less later testimonies that do say that the books of the Rambam were actually burnt, but they might exaggerate the matter. It is possible to read these letters I just read of the Radak without actually assuming that the guide and or safer motto is actually consigned to the bonfire. They wrote as follows. It is quite likely that the guide was brought before a tribunal of the church and certain passages in it were found to border on heresy. But it is inconceivable that the entire book was condemned and burned since only a short time later the church utilized the work in support of its own doctrines. We know that later St. Thomas Aquinas quoted the Moran of Uchim in his works. But Bear continues, The controversy among the Jews may have caused the church to examine the controversial Agados of the Talmud and finally order the destruction. In other words, it, even if the Raman's bur- works were not burned at the time, it set in motion a terrible chain of events. One thing, however, is certain. The controversy in the Jewish camp opened the door to inquisitorial intervention in eternal Jewish affairs. And I will add that we know that the Catholics did burn many, many, many copies of the Gemara on the Strafus of Talmud, or 1242, ten years later. I previously mentioned Rabbi David Kimchi, known by his acronym Radak, as a member of the pro-Maimonidean party. To set the scene, let me discuss his life and worldview briefly before looking at some of his letters on the matter. Radak 
was a grammarian, Baltic and a biblical exegete who hailed from Narbonne in Provence, as he said, in southern France. His dates are approximately from 1160 to 1235. His father, Rabbi Joseph Kimchi, who died at 1170, was also a grammarian and exegete, as well as a translator and polemicist. One source has Yosef Kimchi being born in 1101, which means that he was a very old man, almost 60, when his son Radak was born. Of course, when he was born, he was known as Radak, he was Davidal. Yosef Kimchi migrated from Spain to Provence in the, way, in the wake of the Almohad persecutions of 1148 and settled in Narbonne. He helped introduce the learning and methodology of Spanish Jewry, which of course had been highly influenced by the Arab, Arabic culture that surrounded it to Jews in Provence, who were living in a totally different Christian environment. He composed Hebrew grammar books in Hebrew for those who could not read the old Hebrew bro- grammar books written in Arabic. And Rabbi Yossi Kimchi introduced various concepts, such as the position that we all know today, that there are in Hebrew five long vowels and five short vowels. In his exegesis of Tanakh, he stressed the plain sense or pshad of scripture, as opposed to the homiletical exegesis of earlier Provencal figures, such as Ramosha Hadarshan. Rashi quotes once in a while. Of course, Radak, in his own commentaries, was profoundly influenced by his father. As Rav Yosef Kimchi died when young David Kimchi was only 10 years old, Radak learned much of his father's derech from his old brother, Rav Moshe Kimchi, who Radak calls my brother and my teacher. Rav Moshe Kimchi preferred to comment on the comparatively neglected books of Tanakh. He composed commentaries on Sefer Mishle, Sefer Ezra, and Nehemiah. Interestingly, Rav Moshe Kimchi, besides following his father, Yosef Kimchi's derech, also seems to have been influenced by the works of Rav Avram Ibn Ezra as well. Professor Frank, or Ephraim Talmich, who wrote a book on Radak, pointed out that the commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, that is in standard editions of Mikros Gadolos, and is ascribed to Ibn Ezra, was in fact written by the Radak's older brother, Rav Moshe Kimchi. Radak himself wrote a famous philological work, the Michlal, and helped popularize innovations of his father and brother in Zitduk and in Parish of Tanakh. He also wrote a work called Sefer Asherashim, devoted to the roots of difficult Hebrew words. There was a popular saying from Pirkei Yobos, Im ein Kemach ein Torah, which you will only really understand Torah if you, under, if you understand the works of the Kemach, i.e. Kimchi family. Because of the popularity of Radak's works, all, or at least most earlier Dictic works, written by other authors, sank into oblivion. Radak also wrote on the Messorah, discussing such issues as the problem of Kriyosiv, when the Pasuk is written one way, but vocalized another way. Radak's first commentary in one of the books of Tanakh, apparently was on Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles, in response to a student who wished for a commentary at Derech Hapshat, as opposed to the homiletic Midrashic interpretations of Divrei Hayamim, which were popular then. He also wrote a perush on Sefer Bereshis, as well as two esoteric commentaries on Genesis from chapter 2 through chapter 5, which entails, of course, the Ganeda narrative and the Cain and Abel narrative. Probably the Radak's most famous commentaries are to Nevi'im, the prophets. As we all know, they are printed in standard editions of Mikros Godola Sanach, 
and also wrote on Tehillim. In these commentaries, he utilized the Pshat methodology of Avram Ibn Ezra, as well as that of his father and older brother. But, Radak also heavily quoted rabbinic literature, distinguishing heavily between Pshat and Drash, but quoting both, including many times Drashos, which were purely homiletical. He would disagree with them, but he wouldn't attack them. So I think that feature of Radak's work is probably why in many circles over the years Radak received a better press than the Ibn Ezra. Although both were committed totally to Pshat exegesis. One good example of Radak's citation of both Pshat and Namshad explanations is the biblical episode concerning Shal HaMelech, King Saul, and the Witch of Endor. The plain sense the text of the book of Samuel is that the witch actually brought up the prophet Samuel from the dead, who then proceeds to tell Saul that he would die in battle shortly. Now, do you take this literally or not? So Radak quote Chazal, who apparently take the episode literally, as they took necromancy and raising the spirits of the dead as possible phenomena. He immediately afterwards, however, quotes the Rambam, who describes necromancy as the performance of acts in which it appears that a dead man is talking softly. What do you mean by the word appears? The implication, of course, that's really not so. But that then goes to the issue at hand. The governor of Shmuel ben Chofni, who lived approximately in the year 900, held that it is impossible for for a witch to raise someone from the dead. These events don't happen in this universe. The entire event was fake. It was a ruse devised by the witch. She had immediately recognized Shaul, saw that Shaul was deathly afraid, so she fed into his fears by holding a fake seance in which she imitated the book of Shmuel, the, the voice of Shmuel. But then, Radak, on the other hand, quotes Rastadagon Rapaigon, who claimed that although it is highly improbable that a witch could have any power, in this particular instance, God performed a miracle and revived Shmuel to tell Shaul a future event, namely, that he was going to die very soon. So this is a very important question. How do you read this parak in Tanakh? And Professor Talmud points out, it's hard to tell on which side Radak himself stands. He quotes both. I mean, my opinion, decisive weight should be given to the last comment of the Radak, comment that Professor Talmud does quote, in which he raises a pointed question to the viewer of Sadigon and Rav Haigon. Namely, if God just wanted to perform a miracle and tell Shaul the future, why didn't he do it, why did he not do it, through the more standard means of a prophetic dream, or the Urim Betumim. And that's the Radak's last word. So it seems to me that with that, at the end of the day, he's arguing we should go back to the position of Shmuel ben Chofni, namely, that the entire event with the witch and Shmuel was a fake seance, who possessed no supernatural powers at all, and it is impossible to bring someone up from the dead. So what does all this show? This demonstrates that the Radak was firmly in the Maimonidean rationalist camp, which on the one hand asserted that God could theoretically perform miracles, but on the other hand, sharply minimized the role of miracles in the explanation of the text of the Bible. <coughs> now, with this orientation, Radak also was heir to the Jewish medieval rationalist tradition of Rav Sadegal and Bachia, his father of Yosef Kimchi, his brother of Moshe Kimchi, and he certainly saw in the works of the Rambam a kindred spirit. 
as far as Rambam's intellectualism is concerned, here again, Radak agreed with his stress on the intellect as the link between man and God. According to the Radak, the intellectual who uses his cognitive abilities to study science is also approaching God and is, in one sense, performing a religious act. Moreover, knowledge of science itself is the safeguard against skepticism and heresy. By understanding science, you can see the wonderful works of God. Let me look at some remarkable verses that the Radak explains with this orientation. Everyone that thirsts come for water. First to Torah and science. He explains the, bo- the verse. The book of the Torah shall not depart out of your, ma- your mouth from Yeshua as an admonition that one should know the entire Torah and afterwards study the science. And on Shabbos he writes, one should free his soul from mundane himself, once again, and should concern himself only with Torah and science. So in light of Radak's Maimonidean orientation, it's only natural he should be on the pro-Maimonidean side, and indeed he was. When the controversy broke out, the 1230s, Radak was an old man, over 70 years old, but he was determined to travel from Narbonne in Provence to Toledo in Spain to speak to the Jewish official Rabbi Judah al-Fatar to try to persuade him to use his authority to rescind the ban against reading the Moranavuchim and against reading Sefer Mada the Rambam and to censure Rabbi Shlomo Minahar and his disciples for daring to go against the Rambam. So Professor Tamich writes as follows. If Al-Fakar was selected because of his influence of political importance, it is not clear why. Al-Fakar's chief claim to historical prominence today is Radak's contact with him. One thing, however, is certain. He possessed all the qualifications. Like Maimonides himself, he was a physician, courtier. Like Radak himself, he was a southern European intellectual who engaged in scientific pursuits. Unlike the scholars of northern France, you know, they were totally oblivious to, to science. Radak thought that Rabudal Fakar would surely sympathize with his position. And what happened? Apparently, Radak never made it to Toledo. At a villa in Spain, he became ill and could not continue his journey. He sent his nephew ahead to Rabudal Fakar with a copy of the letter Radak had sent him outlining his position. Part of the exchange of letters has been tra- translated by Professor Talmadge and subsequently by Professor Bernard Septimus and more recently Professor Jacob Adler translated the entire initial exchange and I'd like to cite his translation of the beginning of the Radak's first letter to Yehud al-Fakar to get a feeling of the exchange of letters. Every line contains an allusion to a pasuk. This is in line with classical Hebrew poetry of the Spanish aristocracy. So it's translated as follows. This is Radak writing. Behold, I am come forth as an adversary, as a satan. That's working off the pasuk with the bilam. To the sons of Peleg and Yaktan. Run here, you're very petty, you're small. Those petty, fractious people who disagree with wisdom. That's the Rambam. And belittle his faith, who know no wisdom, and who have not seen understanding. Who can compare with him? meaning the Rambam, in adhering to the religion of God and joining wisdom to it. Now it turns out that Radak was badly mistaken in his assessment of Rabbi Huda al-Fakar. 
this Spanish aristocratic figure turned out to be against the Rambam and consequently against the Radak himself. The beginning of his reply translated as follows. The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan, that's working out Patrick of Zachariah, it is David, that is the Radak, who is the petty one. Now, uh, Professor Jacob Allah points out that Radak had a secular family name of Petit, which is small. So there's a double pun here. Radak is accused of being not just the bearer of the name Petty, but one who is indeed, from a more religious point of view, also petty, small. The letter goes on, attacking Radak for stirring up zeal for the guide of the perplexed. How can you be so pro-the-Mornavuchim? This book, you know, who walks in darkness, do you not know? Have you not heard that some of the words of the guide of the perplexed are themselves entangled? This is a play on the Hebrew Pasuk in Pasha's B'Shalach. Nevuchim heim ba'aret, the garlem hamidbar, the wilderness has shut them in. And the beloved, that's the Rama who had already died, has withdrawn himself and is gone. Then Yehuda Fakar details specific points of minimization of accounts of biblical miracles that the Rambam apparently advocated and that he, namely Rabbi Al-Fakar, as well as the entire anti-Rambam party, rejected. Let's look at some of them. Saying that the sun's standing still at Givon, that's Shemesh Givon Dome. That's the case where the Israel were fighting a war, and Shua asked God, have the sun stop until we uh, have a victory. Do you take that literally or not? And the, month, and the mouth of the donkey. That's the famous story with Bilam and the donkey. Did he talk or not? And the crooked serpent Leviathan. That's the Leviathan that uh, really from Sukkim and Nach already, but the idea is that there's this mystical, very large behemoth. Do you take it literally or not? By way of allegory. With these words, Rabbi Al-Fakar got to the heart of the dispute. Since the Rambam minimized miracles and reinterpreted biblical accounts of them, often in cryptic statements of the Moran what the Rambam's view was, even today, is in dispute. For example, let's take the first case, the stopping of the sun by Yoshua. There actually is a four-way dispute among Maimonidean commentators the Moran what the Rambam actually held. What is clear is what he wrote. He said the sun appeared to the Israelites as if it was in the sky for a length of time equal to that of the longest day possible. Right, that, that would be the summer solstice. So what was the point of the Rambam writing it appeared as if? What's going on here? Was he hinting that he didn't really believe that the sun stopped? We know that in the later period the Rabbah, the Levit Ben Gershom, wrote that the true interpretation of the passage is not that the sun stopped in its tracks, but the military victory won by Bnei Yisrael was so swift that the sun did not start to descend in the sky until the Israelites had won the war. So it's not that it took a, um, you know, a 24-hour battle and God just stopped the sun for 24 hours. It was a very quick, a one-hour you know, blitz that uh, Bnei Yisrael won. So, according to the Rabbah, sun stands still and give on was a metaphor for a prayer for a swift military victory. Was that the real interpretation of the Rambam? Similarly, 
Rabban wrote explicitly that it is as impossible for an uneducated man to receive prophetic inspiration as it is for an animal to talk. Think about that one. That statement in one fell swoop makes the episode of Bilam and the donkey impossible. As well as taking biblical episodes of ignorant people receiving prophetic inspiration literally is also being impossible. Elsewhere, Raman writes that it is impossible for a person to see an angel. Raman says we believe in angels, but you have to know what angels are. Angels, what he called a seichel nivdal, a separate intellect. That is an intellect without a body. Therefore, the Raman writes, any biblical episode that talks about people seeing angels has to have been taking place only in a dream. That's why, astonishingly, he writes that the entire episode of the three angels who came to Abraham Avinu and proclaimed that in a year his wife Sarah would have a baby did not happen when he was awake, but in a dream. Ramban comes to him uh, shortly in his biblical commentary famously attacks the Rambam on this score. Yudah Fakar also attacked the Rambam for writing that had Aristotle proved that the universe is eternal, that is, he, the Rambam, would have reinterpreted the verse that begins the Torah, Bereshit Bar Elokim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, just as the Rambam did reinterpret all the verses that seemingly state that God has corporeal features such as Etzba Elokim. Okay. Now, Yudah Agar says, Rambam, this whole derech is wrong. So what's the right derech? Yudah Agar rejects the premise that one should reinterpret any verse in the Torah according to one's philosophical presuppositions. Torah is not, in his view, to be interpreted in the light of reason, which he claims was the Rambam's premise. On the contrary, Rabbi Yudah Agar claims, reason is to be reinterpreted in the light of Torah. Now, the Rehav Pakar himself raises the question, what about our belief that God has no physical attributes, no hands, no fingers, etc.? Rehav Pakar says, no, our belief in anti-anthropomorphism, that God doesn't have a body or bodily parts, is a different story. How so? He said, this is because Tanakh itself, in many places, writes that God has no image. So it's not a question of reconciling scripture and reason. There's a dispute between scripture and reason. Scripture wins. Here the question is reconciling the sphere of Sukkim within Tanakh. Reconciling different passages of scripture. And here we conclude that the passages that state that God has no body or image is controlling. Therefore, and only because of that, other passages such as Etzbalokim are explained away. But with respect to the creation of the world, there is not a single verse that leads us to the conclusion of Aristotle. There is not a single verse that will lead us to believe that the word is eternal. Gracious bar Kim clearly means that God created the world in time. So there is no place for one to claim that what could theoretically reinterpret the verse based on reason. And implicit in Rabbi Afakar's original attacks on the Rambam are attacks on Radak. So where Radak do you stand? Are you with the Rambam? Rambam is wrong. You don't interpret, reinterpret Torah in the light of reason. You reinterpret reason in the light of Torah. Now, as far as the unfolding of the controversy itself went, there was some pushback against Rabbi Yudah Afakar's harsh language directed towards the Radak. First, there was a certain comedy of errors regarding the exchange of letters. Remember, this is the 1230s. You didn't have email. So, Professor Talmud, in his book on Radak, goes into 
what he calls the comedy of errors. Rabakar did not not receive Radak's first letter. So Radak sent him a second letter complaining why he didn't write back. Then Rabakar sent him a letter after this one. Then etc. etc. But all of Rabakar's criticisms became known to Radak. Now at one point, and I think it's important to present the Radak's view, he defends his own scrupulousness in Torah and mitzvot and of the Maimonidean camp in general. Radak was a Shomer Torah mitzvot. He writes as follows. We, that is the pro-Ramam camp, maintain religion following without hypocrisy the words of the rabbis. We attend the house of God, Shul, at dawn and evening, standing in fear and trembling as befitting an Israelite. We are meticulous in the observance of religious law. We have inherited the legacy of our father Abraham. We weary ourselves day and night over the Torah, and we secretly support the poor. We do justice at every opportunity. Among us are those who provide books for the poor who have none, and who give stipends for the study of the Bible and Talmud. We have supported Kolel. Can you say of such deeds that they are transgressors? Heaven forbid. So it's clear that the Radak and Rabbi Yudal Fakar were just talking past each other. Professor Talmud writes how Radak's defense was at the level of the practical. The rationalists, he said, should be judged by their deeds, their mitzvot maestios. And the Rambam and his followers, according to Radak, were surely such men. But according to Rabbi Yudal Fakar, that's not enough. Theoretical stands on such issues as creation, miracles, and resurrection are also fundamental notions of what it means to be a proper Jew. That was the point of Revud Apakar's critique of the Rambam and how this Spanish-Jewish aristocratic figure turned out to be on the anti-Rambam side. Okay, I'll now turn to the Ramban whose dates are 1194 to 1270. The, Ram- the Ramban, or the Nun, is such a dazzling figure in so many areas that it's hard to classify him. Of course, he wrote that magnificent Parish al Torah, biblical commentator. Then he wrote on Shas. You know, he, and he wrote all these monographs defending early authorities from later authorities. He wrote the Muhammad Hashem defending the rift against the Balamar. He defended the, the rift against uh, the attacks of the, of the rivet. He defends the Bahag and Sefer Mitzvot against the Rambam. He was a Makubal. He had his tradition of Kabbalah and was extremely against anyone thinking up new Kabbalistic ideas by themselves. He was a theologian with a specific philosophy of history. And he was a poet and a physician as well. The Maimonidean controversy of the 1230s was the first of two major public events in which Ramban played a major role. The second one was 30 years later, his debate with the apostate public Christianity in 1263 in which Ramban defended Jewry. And of course, you can't talk about the Ramban without mentioning that all of his writings are imbued with an intense, passionate love for Eretz Yisrael. And as an old man over 70, he traveled to Eretz Yisrael, living there for the last three years of his life, before passing away there in the year 1270. Ramban, by the way, was the first cousin of Rabbeinu Yonah, but as we shall presently see, that does not mean they share the same opinions neither practically nor theoretically 
vis-à-vis the Rambam. Then Yonah, as we have seen, he was one of the disciples of Shlomo Minahar. He was a fierce anti-Rambam figure and tried to convince the northern French rabbis to put the Sefer Hamad on the Mordebuchim of the Cherim. There's a book published three dozen years ago with an amazing title, Rabbi Moses Nachmanides, Explorations in His Religious and Literary Virtuosity, edited by the late Professor Yitzhak Tversky. So after Professor Tversky's introduction, the first article is written by Professor Bernard Septimus, and it's a prelude to my brief discussion of the Ramban and his role in the Maimonidean controversy. I will cite the first paragraph of the article. For a very long time, there has been an almost irresistible urge to juxtapose Nachmanides, that's Ramban, to Maimonides, the Ramban. They were the two most influential teachers of the Hispano-Jewish tradition, differed on many crucial issues, and represented rival spiritual tendencies. Sometimes one also suspects that the old rhetorical pull of, now everyone get ready for a big phrase coming up here, paranomasia contrarium. Paranomasia refers to words which are almost the same and differ in only one small detail, like one letter. And contrarium, of course, refers to the idea of having contrary or opposite meanings. Look how this one little shift from mem to nun moves us from Rambam to his antithetical counterpart Ramban. In any case, rather than repeat such stale Rambam-Ramban oppositions as reason and faith, thought and feeling, philosophy and mysticism, Professor Septimus continues, I prefer to succumb to the traditional temptation of the contextual contrast. Maimonides was the last great figure formed by the golden age of Andalusia. Andalusia is the area of southern Spain which is under Islamic rule. And the Jews of that place and period pursued a thoroughly rationalist agenda. Nachmanides was the first great Spanish figure belonging totally to the cultural environments of Christian Europe. Ramban, of course, hailed from Girona, near Barcelona in Catalonia, that's northeastern Spain, which is never under Islamic rule. But then Professor Septimus goes on to qualify any stark dichotomy between the utterly rationalist Andalusian culture and an anti-rationalist Catalan one. Calling Ramban, I like this phrase, a genius standing at an intellectual crossroads, he sees Ramban is absorbing many of the values of the Andalusian culture, while simultaneously rejecting that for the excesses of unbridled philosophical rationalism. In this, he disputed Professor Yitzchak Baer, who painted the more one-sided, anti-rationalistic view of, of Ramban. Now, how we look at Ramban determines how we interpret Ramban's stances on various issues during his life. And the prime example, of course, is the case we're about to discuss, Ramban's attempt to mediate between the sides in the Maimonidean controversy. Like, it's clear that you have, on one hand, we've seen Radak, pro-Rambam, Ruda al-Fakar, anti-Rambam, and we, we see clearly the lines of uh, arguments, right? You say you interpret scripture based on reason, or you say the other thing, you interpret reason based on scripture. Where does Ramban hold? So according to Yitzhak Baer, Ramban in his heart of heart was just like his cousin, Rabbeinu Yonah. He was an unmitigated opponent of Andalusian rationalism. So what did he do? We know he tried to solve the controversy. He did attempt to defend the Montpellier anti-rationalists from the Provençal 
pro-Rambam forced it. So far, so good. But he also wrote a famous open letter to the Baliatosos of northern France in defense of the Rambam, begins Terem Aner Nishogeg. He sought to have the comprehensive ban against the Moran of Uchim and the Sefer Madra of the Rambam withdrawn, and apparently he was somewhat successful in that endeavor. But if the Ramban, in his heart of hearts, really agreed with the Kazarmeno Yono, why should he be against a Cherem against the Rambam's controversial works? So according to Yitzchak Ber, although in principle he agreed with the anti-Rambam faction, his difference was only tactical. As Septimus put it, according to Ber, Ramban's defense of Rambam was an act of realistic statesmanship rather than an act of conscience. He knew there was so, had to stop this controversy. And there were so many communities, like people like Razak, who were so pro-Rambam, it's going to be impossible to do everything he wants. Our goal has to be just to stop the Machlokas. But, Professor Septimus disputed this. In his view, Ramban's persona is much more complicated. And, as a corollary, Ramban's behavior in the Maimonidean controversy, which he tried to stake out a middle position, reflected his actual positions that he held in his heart. First of all, we have to un- revise our understanding of the Andalusian tradition, which was one of the basis of Ramban's thought. Now, we all are familiar with Rabbi Huda Halevi. So he was a big anti-rationalist. But it's a mistake to look at Yehuda Halevi as the only Spanish rebel against the uniformly rationalistic Andalusian culture. Not true. Many other figures were cultures that used rationalistic tools to attack philosophical exorcism. We already seen Rabbi Dal Fakar. So maybe that's exactly Ramban's position. It's, 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 he, he takes philosophy, he, he's against excesses of philosophy, but he's not the extreme character of, you know, Ravina Yona or the like. Now, this more nuanced view of the Ramban and all its complexity makes for a more sophisticated understanding of the Ramban's relationship with Ibn Ezra. We all know, at the beginning of his commentary in the Torah, Ramban writes, he will engage in dialogue with two classic predecessors. Rashi, the great Mufarish of Franco-German Jewish culture, and Ibn Ezra, representative of the Spanish Jewish Andalusian tradition. Whereas he is totally reverent towards Rashi, vis-à-vis the Ibn Ezra, he writes, we will have open rebuke of the Ibn Ezra and concealed love. So Isaac Hirsch Weiss, the 19th century Moscow, commented, yeah, Ramban fills commentary with open rebuke, derision, ridicule, where's the hidden love? Of course, according to President Sesimus, that's precisely the point. Ramban did have some deep spiritual affinities with Ibn Ezra. To be sure, Ramban rebuked Ibn Ezra for several reasons. Over his cavalier treatment of Agadita, over, over his overly rationalistic exegesis, the key word here is overly, and Ibn Ezra's pretension of esoteric wisdom, which Ramban, of course, felt was the exclusive province of those who engaged in Kabbalah. But on the quest for Pshat, to interpret Dvar Hashem grammatically and sensibly, Ramban was actually not that far from Ibn Ezra. Return to the issue at hand, the Maimonidean controversy. What emerges is that Ramban's mediating position can indeed be respective of his inner beliefs. He was not against the study of philosophy to the extent that figures such as Yusuf Fair believed. He did not take all Agudas literally. 
in his debate with Pablo Christiani in 1263, he remarked he didn't believe the Agatha statement that Mashiach was already alive at the time of the Churban based on Mikdash, a statement that the Christian polemicists used for their own purposes. He was telling the truth. Ramban's incredible complexly, as we mentioned, he was everything. And he did everything so well. A mystic, a physician, a theologian, a poet, Mufarish and Chumish, Mufarish and Shas, can't be oversimplified. And it was this complexity that served as the background for his carefully crafted position to resolve the controversy, which indeed can be reflective of what he held in his heart. Now let's briefly turn to what Ramban Slackley proposed. David Berger wrote an article on this in the Sefer Zikoran for which I will cite. Okay, as we mentioned, certain aspects of Ramban's attempted compromise are clear. Ramban wanted to lift the comprehensive ban on Sefer Hamada and the Moranavuchim of the Rambam, as well as ban on private study of the Moran. Now, what about public study of Moranavuchim? Can you have a a, a class in which people are publicly studying it. So here there's a dispute on how to read the letter of the Ramban. I can't go here uh, today in the technical intricacies on how to read the Hebrew as well as the question of which manuscript of the Ramban's letter is most authoritative. I'll just summarize various positions. Rebchaim Dov Shavel was famous for his editions of the Ramban. He even has a very nice, it was reprinted the, uh, in his writings and discourses, uh, a translation to English on his letter to the French rabbis. So he understood that according to the Ramban, there will be no cherem even on public study of the guide. Only thing that there would be, would be a ban against those who speak arrogantly and mock the sages. Starring Zev Yavitz, and following Rabbi Shavel, even suggested that in certain versions of Ramban's letter, the word low is missing. Ramban writes that one should not institute any ban at all, even on public study. David Berger, for his part, based on manuscript evidence, argues that the correct reading of the Ramban is indeed that there should be a formal ban of Cherem on public group study of the Moran of Uchim. So David Berger included his article the following paragraph. What then did Nachmanides propose to do in order to resolve the Maimedian controversy? First, the ban on Sefer Hamada, which is a wonderful book, must be lifted. By the way, in the middle of his letter, the Ramban says, what the Ram doesn't say for Hamada, he was the first person to make a whole subsection, Hilchos Tshuva. It says, before the Rambam, you have a line here in this Gemara, a line there in that Gemara. You know, it's like a jungle. And the Rambam put it all together, organized it, classifies it, categorized it. That itself is an amazing feat. So you have to take away the comprehensive ban. Second, the ban on the guy, the Marnavuchim, a ban which currently applies to private as well as public study, must be lifted as well. Third, a ban on group study of the guide should be instituted. So, those historians that say that there was no ban at all according to Ramban are wrong. And fourth, and finally, the study of philosophy should be entirely discouraged, but gently, without a ban. Now, this last point is called troubling. Ramban had studied Ramban's philosophy. It's difficult to claim that the Ramban made a distinction between exceptional people and the masses. Namely, that only the former would not be discouraged from studying philosophy. 
Ramban quoted in his letter a previous letter purportedly written by Rav Haigon two hundred years earlier against philosophy, and that letter was explicitly directed to a great scholar. So even Tamini Chachamim were to be discouraged from studying philosophy. David Berger proposed two suggestions. One, first, exigencies of the moment. Remember, we're here in a major controversy that's tearing the intellectual Jewish world apart. My Manadian controversy was tearing at the fabric, he writes, of Jewish leadership of various communities. So had the Ramban been asked the question another time, he might not have discouraged to study philosopher exceptional people. But because of the here and now, the only way out of the crisis to make shalom was to discourage philosophy for everyone. Second, this was, can be a genuine element in the complex psyche of the author. Ramban may indeed have been of two minds as he struggled with the question of philosophical study. In his own, very capable hands, it could be a useful handmaiden for the Torah. But for most others, it was fraught with peril. Elsewhere he called Ramban's view of philosophical religion as opposed to a religious philosophy. The gentle discouragement of the pursuit of study of philosophy, even if it applied to scholars, was by no means bad public policy, particularly if it could persuade the northern rabbis to withdraw their damaging ban. I would add something to that. My impression after reading, for example, <coughs> sections from Chaviva Badai's book, Ramban and Kabbalah, is although that it's hard to pin the, down the time frame with any precision, you get the impression that as Ramban got older and older, he was less and less into philosophy, even as a handmaiden to Jewish theology, and was more and more immersed in Kabbalah as the way for a Jew to become closer to God. So even with respect to his own personal curriculum study, although Ramban could, and maybe even would, not undo his past, he could certainly urge young scholars of a generation after his own not to get involved with philosophy in the first place. Ramban could take the position that there'd be no mitzvah in anyone else duplicating his own progression. And as he studied more and more Kabbalah, and through his studies attempted to become closer to the Rabbanu Shalom, he believed more and more strongly that the study philosophy was not needed. Ramban could feel that it would be religiously preferable for young scholars simply not to get started with secular philosophical studies. We don't know exactly how the Maimonidean controversy ended. We do know, as real Shochan is written, that apparently Rabban's letter did have an impact on the northern French rabbis. Perhaps they even did formally revoke the ban on the works of the Rambam. So it's appealing to prefer the idea that the Ramban helped end it, instead of just saying it was ended by the, you know, the, the burning of the, the Catholic authorities when, when, when they burnt the books. So Ramban's attempt to solve the Mindian controversy didn't meet with success. When I was preparing this lecture at home, I mulled over several possibilities how to end it. So I decided to conclude it with a translation of one part of the Ramban's letter. The part in which he implores the French rabbis to understand the cultural circumstances of the Rambam's world and how different they are from the insular world of the Bali Atosos. And consequently, to be more understanding of the Rambam's integrational philosophy into Torah, even if it was not fit for the communities of Tamil Chachamim north of the Loire River, northern France. The Musa Haskell for today's Orthodox world, which is a big difference between Lakewood on the one hand and Five Towns on the other hand, 
different communities all have different hashkafos. Lower East Side, as I'm learning, has its own traditions, and that's fine. So I think there's a Musa Haskell in reading these words of the Ramban and apply it today. The translation of these words of Ramban to the rabbis of northern France reads as follows. You did not honor the great Rav, that is the Rambam, who constructed a veritable fortress of Talmudic exegesis, a mighty tower for the honor of Hashem. His teachings served as a temple for the myriad simple folk who had been sucked through the breaches of our tradition. To the multitude, hungry for wisdom, he gave of his bread of knowledge. His words of Torah are as ever-flowing waters. Many heretics who espouse distortions against our Talmud, he has answered with his truthful words. And if you are so fortunate as to find yourselves firmly ensconced in the bosom of faith, among the multitude of rich, fresh, faithful Jews who are ensconced in the courtyards of the stalwart tradition, do not turn the blind eye to those who dwell in the far-off corners. Those who are barred from hope, be fortified with strength. Those compelled by lusts and of drunken spirits, who had stuffed their bellies with Greek vanities, he has satiated with our faith and tradition. Had they not derived spiritual vitality from the works of the Rav, meaning the Rambam, and the works he produced, had they not saturated their souls with his fertile wisdom and taken peaceful refuge in the tents of the testimony that he erected, their footsteps would have faltered. Have you not inquired of the great travelers who are expert in aberration, who excel in phraseology, and who convey valuable lessons through allegory about the praise of the great Rav, that is the Rambam? Had you done so, you'd have been enthralled by the descriptions of the loftiness of his piety, the power of his faith, the intensity of his humility, the greatness of his lineage, the incredible generosity of his charitable undertakings, his awe-inspiring words, how he forever cleaves to and yearns for fear of God, how he's linked in an internal kiss with our Talmud, and how much he loves the words of the sages and fully embraces them. For they are the treasure of his eyes, the true treasure of his soul, and the crowning achievements of his great mind. Adkan Tivei Ramban. Thank you very much.